Welcome, uh, everybody, to this uh, new edition of uh, the IFS Zoom Zing with me, Paul Johnson. And today I'm really delighted to be joined by Chris Stark, who's the Chief Executive of the Climate Change Committee, um, a committee actually on which I serve. So Chris and I have been involved in many meetings and discussions. And um, we want to talk today about the UK's commitment to achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, why we've made that commitment and indeed why the Climate Change Committee made the recommendation that we should get to net zero, how much it might cost and indeed why uh, our estimates are that it shouldn't cost too much, but also thinking about how those costs might be distributed. Um, so, Chris, first of all, maybe it's worth just having a bit of a conversation about why net zero and why 2050, because there are people around who think we should be getting to zero, but an awful lot quicker than that. And there are also others who think that this might just be far too difficult and ambitious for a country like the UK to achieve. So perhaps you could just start by giving a little bit of background as to how the committee came to that conclusion. Thanks, Paul. And um, hello to all of your listeners. Really good to join you. Nice to see you in a different forum, Paul. Um, So this net zero thing is something we've been hearing quite a lot about uh, over the last few years. And that in itself is worth commenting on because we weren't really talking about uh, net zero, which I will explain in just a second, until quite recently um, outside of a few exclusive groups. So I think one of the interesting things that has happened over the last two or three years is, is the extent to which this net zero stuff has become um, a topic of discussion outside of climate circles. Um, It's almost a slogan, um, but the reality is it's also a scientific goal. So net zero uh, globally is, um, to put simply, put put really simply, it's the the point when we will stop um, warming our atmosphere through the things that we are doing uh, here on the earth, in particular to, to fuel the global economy. And the most, the most important of those things is burning fossil fuels. So every year we burn fossil fuels. We use that. It's really at the basis of the modern economy. And uh, that creates uh, carbon dioxide. Uh, we put that carbon dioxide up into the atmosphere. It doesn't really matter where we put it into the atmosphere. Um, it mixes quite quickly globally. And then it has this greenhouse, uh, greenhouse effect. So the more carbon dioxide there is in the atmosphere, the higher the temperature on the planet. So that we've known that for a very long time. And um, uh, a few years back in Paris, we signed the Paris Agreement along with uh, every other country in the world, more or less. And the Paris Agreement uh, doesn't talk about net zero. Instead, it talks about a temperature goal. So it has within it this idea that the world should try and uh, stop uh, uh, heating uh, the planet uh, as quickly as possible and to, and to try and keep the temperature uh, rise to beneath two degrees centigrade from where it was prior to us really starting the fossil fuel burning in earnest. Now, what we've been doing and others have been doing along, along the way is trying to translate that temperature goal into an emissions um, pathway for the planet. And the implication of all the work that's been done by the scientists is that to get to that temperature goal of well below two degrees centigrade, with best efforts to one and a half degrees centigrade, which is a kind of new thing that was introduced at Paris. The implication of that is that the world will have to reach net zero emissions probably sometime in the 2070s. 
Um, so we've been thinking about that here in the committee uh, in the UK and the implication of that. And in uh, a couple of years back, we were asked whether the UK had the right long-term goal. Uh, we used to have an 80% target. So we used to, the target was to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 80% by 2050. Um, we looked again at the science, looked again at this question of global net zero, looked at the Paris Agreement, and we looked also at what the UK could do to cut emissions. And we concluded that it was the right approach for the UK to set a goal for cutting its emissions to net zero by 2050. And I should explain that net zero is very simply the point when you have reduced emissions as much as possible and then netted off whatever remains uh, by a, a set of strategies to take emissions from the atmosphere to get to that, that kind of neutral point of zero. Uh, so that's the goal for the UK now. And since then, we've been building all of our evidence on how the UK can actually reach that goal. And so that's uh, the, the goal for the UK is a little bit more ambitious, actually, than the goal for the world as a whole. Or as you say, the um, 2070 is more like the point at which you need to get uh, zero across the globe in order to stabilise temperatures at one and a half to two degrees above um, pre-industrial levels. Um, and obviously, um, there are lots of reasons why the UK might want to be a bit ahead of the world. I mean, there is a historic reason in that we've uh, contributed an awful lot in the past, uh, particularly as the first country to go through an industrial revolution. There's the capacity uh, issue that um, we have. Uh, we're a relatively rich country and we can do this, uh, this, uh, this kind of thing. But it also does, of course, depend on the rest of the world coming along with us. I mean, to what extent are you confident or um, optimistic that um, we're not going to be miles and miles out ahead of everybody else um, and uh, therefore some of our effort at least somewhat in vain? Pretty confident, and I'm more confident than I was uh, a couple of years ago. So the... the um... The big piece of work that we did in 2019, which was our net zero report, which, which had within it this recommendation that the UK should set a net zero target. At that point in 2019, it was May in 2019, we published that. One of the things that we said was that it was important for the UK to set that goal because it will help others make the same decision. And at the time we said that, uh, there was a lot of people who read that and said, well, that's, that can't be right. You know, the UK is only a small country. But I do think that we, along with others, this isn't a kind of British exceptionalism thing here, but I do think that, that there is now a, a kind of collection of people, collection of countries, I should say, and a collection of corporates as well, who have been willing to set up, to, uh, to set a goal for net zero. And that is creating a kind of almost a club of people that, that is growing uh, month by month and creating more and more confidence that we can get to the global goal of net zero. Now, we were not talking that way a few years ago, as I mentioned. So I think the UK has been part of that. I think that the, when the UK set its net zero goal, net zero by 2050, that, that certainly helped the EU uh, do the same thing. France followed very swiftly afterwards, after, afterwards too. So there's a collection of countries that, which has now got actually much longer than it was uh, two years ago. So we have others now on that, on that list, including notably China by 2060. Uh, South Korea's on there too. 
uh, and Joe Biden is likely to sign up to that uh, as part of the package of things that he'll do on climate as the new US president. So there is now a, a, a lot of momentum uh, politically towards these mid-century net zero goals. There's less uh, focus, sadly, on the near term, which I think is another important point. So it's one thing to have a mid-century net zero goal. It's almost the easy thing to do. Uh, that gives you a sort of social license, I suppose. But it's really, really important that it's not just a mid-century goal. You, we, we have to cut emissions consistently over the over the coming three or four decades to get to the Paris uh, goals. And that implies action over the next decade in particular to turn around uh, uh, global emissions, this kind of handbrake turn that you sometimes see from some of the modelling uh, compliant with, with the Paris Agreement. Now, that's going to be really difficult, but I think it starts with those net zero goals. So I'm feeling quite confident, actually, that that is... Uh, more and more a kind of unified strategy uh, across the developed economies, at least. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. In many ways, it's quite um, it's quite remarkable that the, so many countries in the world have signed up to do so much in, a, in what one often thinks of as a classic kind of um, economic problem of a public good or a global externality where actually what any individual country, bar possibly China or the U.S., does makes very little difference. And so there's a huge incentive for any individual country to say, let's leave it up to everybody else. And certainly in what's been signed up to in the rhetoric and um, the, the targets, that's not how countries are acting. And I, I, I agree with you. That's extremely, um, extremely positive. But I also agree that there are concerns across the world, and to some extent in the UK as well, about the uh, extent to which action um, is actually meeting um, is actually meeting rhetoric. Let's come yeah. on to that action bit in in a minute. Um, but there there is a I mean there, there's there's a separate sort of critique of this, which um, certainly comes from some of those in the um, green or climate change movements who feel that for the UK 2050 is too far away, and indeed would like to see all developed countries um, bringing those targets quite a long way forward. So, I mean, putting the question the other way about, as it were, not so much why 2050, but more why not 2030 or 2040, given that I think we all agree that this is a huge priority and the risks are very great indeed. Yeah, it's a huge question and it's been interesting in, in my job that the toughest critics of the CCC haven't been from what we used to think of as kind of climate deniers or the people on the other side of the argument. It's actually the, the toughest critics of the CCC most recently have been those who want to move even faster and really vociferous um, criticism occasionally of what we've done. So, I mean, it's important to say that the science is pretty clear on this. The, the quicker you cut emissions, the better. So there's no doubt about that. That is uh, that that's the kind of global goal here, that the, the damage that we are doing to the climate and in return, the damage that we're doing to the global economy is greater with every month that passes uh, while emissions are high. So cutting them as quickly as possible is certainly the goal. But the thing that goes with that, and this is the harder thing, I think, to discuss, is that it has to be sustainable in all the senses. So, you know, it's got to be something that sticks. And the extent of change that is necessary to bring about these net zero goals is easy to underestimate. I mean, we use fossil fuels extensively throughout the UK economy and economies around the world do so too. And that's because of their convenience. 
uh, you know, and for years that was the goal, you know, to try and, and, and to try and make them more and more convenient as a means to, 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 to grow the, the economy. Now, reversing that is hard. And the thing I'll maybe add in here is that the extent of lifestyle change that might need to go with the, with, with a rapid descent towards net zero is also quite, uh, quite extensive. So the crucial thing for us is how quickly can we achieve that goal? In our assessments, we're looking not just at achieving the goal of net zero, but also strategies that, that will work and will bring about a kind of long-term sustainable reduction in emissions. And, and doing that quickly is difficult. So as you would expect from the, from the Climate Change Committee, we, we, we are as ambitious as we think we can be within those confines. We might talk later, Paul, about some of the things that we need to do to get to net zero. But what we've tried to do is to look at strategies across the economy that rapidly bring about sustainable and enduring emissions reductions. And to do that in such a way that we manage the transition in the economy, the manage the transition in society with that in a sustainable way too. So in particular, the change in jobs, uh, the change in, in uh, circumstances in the home, uh, you know, the changes that we see around us, which require a lot of investment, all of that needs to be properly managed. And yes, it needs to be done as quickly as possible. But the reality is that doing it much quicker than 2050 in the UK is going to be extraordinarily difficult. Most recent piece of work that we've been doing has, has actually developed a scenario to do it earlier than this, the, the statutory targets. But it doesn't shave off that much. Because, and it's a testament to how hard it is actually to, to, to deliver these emissions reductions uh, in concert across the economy. So I, my response to people who want to do it sooner is, yes, I agree, I would like to do it sooner too, but they also need to engage with the, the, the question of how you deliver that and how you do that in, a, in an enduring, sustainable way. And often I think the you know, criticism that's been levelled at us and others who've uh, come in behind that net zero target in the UK, I don't think that that has engaged with that practical concern, concern of how you deliver those, those changes uh, uh, across the economy. Yeah, and I, I I'm obviously, you know, as a member of the committee, agree with that very um, strongly. I mean, just to give some sense of what we would need to do to get to net zero, we clearly have to stop all um, internal combustion ending cars, but also lorries. Um, and uh, whilst we have the technology for electric cars at the moment, electric lorries for the whole fleet is some way away. We need to get rid of all of our gas central heating um, and indeed gas cooking. Um, we need to change our agriculture pretty substantially. Um, and uh, other ways of traveling, uh, eating, living our lives as well. These are all substantial changes. And um, it's interesting, isn't it, that um, through this um, current COVID crisis, people have said, well, look, you know, if the government can find 400 billion this year to deal with this crisis um the climate crisis is a crisis as well why not find that kind of money for the next few years to make the kinds of changes that we're talking about but i think again because of what you've just described that rather misses the point i mean the 400 billion for covid has largely been just cash trans trans um uh, transferring money from well i was going to say one set of taxpayers to another but from um the Bank of England and from people we borrow money from to another, whereas everything that we're talking about here, cash doesn't cut it because we're actually talking about building huge amounts of electricity generating capacity. We're talking about replacing tens of millions um, of vehicles. We're talking about transforming the way that 
farming and so on is done. So this is not the sort of thing that, you know, cash clearly is needed, but you need an awful lot more than cash. Yeah, I totally agree with that, Paul. I mean, I think it's, there's an easy, um, rather too simple description of what needs to be done here. It starts with, it's always about the government and it's always about how much money we're spending. And, you know, and I'm, I think I often fall into that trap too when I'm describing the remedies to the various strategies to cut emissions. It's often It often goes back to what the government can do. But the point is, you, the reality is you can't just legislate your way out of this and you can't just spend your way out of it. it is a, it's a societal shift almost like no other. And I think that there is a, there is a parallel between what's happened during the pandemic and what's what, and what we need to do on climate. Um, but I, I am, I'm a bit suspicious about making a perfect parallel between those two things because they are quite different. They're both crises, but of a quite a different sort. I mean, if anything, I think what's interesting, there's kind of two aspects to what's come about over COVID, which do interest me. One is the government's reaction to it. So we've, we've I think we've firmly established that government will and can act uh, in an extraordinary way when when the circumstances demand it. But the other thing that we've established is that people will react in an extraordinary way during, during these sorts of crises too. So I suppose one thing that's interesting to me, and I don't have an answer to this, is as we come out of the climate, as we rather come out of the, um, the COVID crisis, what have we learned about people's capacity to tolerate change quickly? Because that might indicate that there is a quicker route to getting to net zero if, if, the, if the will is there. But I'm much less sure that you can say, well, we had a pandemic and we reacted quickly, therefore we should do the same about the climate crisis because they are very different crises, not you know, naturally. Um, the thing with climate change is it is a crisis. I do think we should think of it that way, but it's quite, it is a different thing. It is, it is it, I mean, to use a term, it's, it's a slow burn in the sense that we, we're, it's, it seems to be just pitched at the right level so that people living on this planet don't quite view it as a crisis in the same way as they would as a pandemic. And therefore, you need the political leadership to drive us to the right answer. And I think that's that's the difficulty, is that it, it's not really the parallel to COVID. Um, but we may have learned something during this um, during this pandemic about about how we react to these, these things. We've noted definitely something about technology and innovation. So there's a nice an interesting link to how quickly we developed the vaccine, for example. Uh, I do think we've learned something about people's um, will, willingness to tolerate change as well. So I, 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 all of that is going to be a rich source of research and analysis, I'm sure, over the coming years. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's all really um, that's all really important context. But uh, I mean, for me, I think the um, I mean, you're right. The I mean, what we've learned to some extent is we learned something about the power of government. We've learned something about the capacity to change when we have to. Uh, but I think there are there are as big a differences as there are um, similarities. We're talking about a much more long-term thing with climate. We're not talking about something which is killing 100,000 people this year, and people do find that much more immediate and urgent um, and as we were saying, we're talking with the climate crisis about something which requires not just hundreds, maybe thousands of billions of pounds, but that money to be invested in building stuff, in building cars, in building windmills and solar panels and so on. And that's not something you can turn on overnight in quite the same kind of way. I mean, what's quite um, striking from the conversation um, is that, I mean, we've, you've started off 
very optimistic. I mean, we both did. Uh, then we sort of kind of wrote back and said, well, doing it a lot quicker than 2050 looks really challenging. But how challenging is um, how challenging is 2050? How how in in two senses, I suppose. I mean, we often think about this in terms of cost. And I suppose one of the reassuring things from the work that you've done, that we've done, is that it doesn't look like the cost is going to be unmanageable. But perhaps you could just take us through a bit about why, given how difficult it all looks, that that cost isn't quite so unmanageable as you might expect. But yet, you know, it is it is still a challenging thing to do. Yeah, it's, I mean, this is... I'm, I am simultaneously optimistic, but also cautious. I don't know if you can combine those two things. So I don't want to, in all the things that we're about to discuss, it's important to say that this is not a free lunch. So the aggregate position increasingly looks like the cost to the whole economy of achieving net zero is 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 pretty low, and, and some might say remarkably low, and I'll justify that, that in a second. But it's uh, important to say that this is not just an aggregate question. So the, the, the impacts that we will feel uh, across the economy will vary. And I think that's really at the heart of it. But if I just explain the aggregate position, maybe maybe I'll be able to explain why I'm feeling more optimistic about it. When we've looked at how we can cut emissions, what's happened over the last decade and more of doing this, the CCC has been around since 2008. And over the course of the 12 or 13 years or so that the, the uh, Climate Change Committee has been around, what we've done is built more and more um, confidence about the strategies that we need to deploy across the economy to cut emissions. So carbon abatement strategy, as we would refer to it internally, has become really quite rich and, and detailed and, and integrated across the economy. So we now, we're now very, very confident that we have enough information at our fingertips to be able to advise on actually more than one route to achieving net zero by 2050 and indeed to achieve it even earlier than that. So, you know, we've got lots of information about the things that we can do. And what's clear is that there isn't one route through, you know, there's lots of strategies across each sector of the economy for cutting emissions. And that's good because optionality means it's more likely to happen. Um, And I'm, you know, I'm always suspicious when it looks like there's only one route through over the next 30 years. So all of that is great. And when you look across those various scenarios, what you see is that there is one consistent factor, which is that it takes a lot of investment to get to net zero. It's, it's, it's to use a, a, a term that we use a lot in the, in the committee, it's a, it's, a, it's a capital intensive endeavor. Lots and lots of capital investment, particularly in the energy system, also in transport, also in industry, and crucially, because I say crucially because I think it's the thing that's going to be hardest, the investment in the built environment, in the homes and the buildings that we work in. So that investment across the economy, we can see how that investment needs to needs to be that what needs where that where that needs where investment needs to take place. We have lots of information about that, and we've been able to build for the first time ever in a report that we published in December um, a, a full profile of capital investment over the next 30 years to deliver the, the recommended pathway that we now have for the UK. And that's great. It not It's great because we can then do something with that information. And it's not a prediction. So I, you know, I'm sure that we will be wrong about the extent of capital investment, but it, it's great to be able to look at that profile of CapEx over the next 30 years, and especially the CapEx in the next 10 years. What we can do with that is say, well, look, that, 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 what that means is, in, in effect, we need to up the total investment across the UK economy to the tune of about £50 billion per year. 
Um, we're already investing over the order of £10 billion per year in, in decarbonizing the power system. So over the next 10 years, we need to scale that up to more like £50 billion. So it's across the economy. Most of that will be private investment. Much of that will happen without uh, government policies, but lots of it does. Lots of it does require government policy to steer that investment in the right place. Now, fifty billion pounds sounds like a lot of money, and it is a lot of money. But in twenty nineteen, uh, just to give a sense of scale, capex across the UK economy is more like four hundred billion. So we're adding an eighth to that over the next over the next ten years. So that's that's the kind of capex requirement to get to net zero. The really cool thing that we've been able to do alongside that is also, because we now have that profile out to 2050, what we can also say is, well, what's the saving that comes with that? Because that it, it, it follows that there is something that comes from making all these investments, which is notably that we're not spending money on fossil fuels increasingly over time. And we're using uh, technologies that tend to be much more energy efficient, tend to be electrified, tend to be therefore using... Uh, cheaper and cheaper uh, renewable power, especially in the UK, which is now the cheapest form of electricity generation, bar none. So if we, if we plug all that into the modelling that we've done, what we see is, yes, there's this £50 billion uh, capex requirement, but increasingly over time, there's a fuel saving that eventually cancels that, that investment cost out entirely. And it grows over time, as you would expect. And that has really deep implications for the overall aggregate cost, the net cost of the economy which we can express in its net form, its resource cost as a proportion of GDP. And we used to talk about uh, you know, the cost of the old 80% target that the UK had, 80% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. Well, we costed that way back in 2008 at between 1% to 2% of GDP on that basis. Uh, in 2019, we gave advice that we should set a net zero target. And at that point, we were being cautious and we, we costed that at 1% to 2% of GDP as well, thanks to the falling power price, especially. That's so important to the net zero transition. And then this year, after publishing our net zero report, what we got was these amazing results from the latest offshore wind auction in the UK. And we plugged in those results to our modeling and that's cut the cost again. So now actually we're more like 1%, up to 1% of GDP looks like the cost of the economy. And actually the, the, the kind of central estimates are less than that. It's more like half a percent of GDP. So that's an amazing thing, Bill, to say. We were not talking that way a decade ago. So it's great news, Chris, um, that it looks like the um, aggregate economic costs of achieving this, if we do policy well, and I think it is a really important um, caveat to everything you've said, that we do have to get policy right in order to get a, a reasonably uh, low cost transition, because it would be easy to make a mess of this. Um, if we get policy right, uh, then we ought to have a transition which uh, is perfectly feasible from an economic point of view in the aggregate. And we've had lots of good news about that. We've had um, really good news about the cost of solar power and wind power and so on. And actually, uh, the transition to electric vehicles is looking probably a lot easier than we perhaps thought uh, a decade um, ago. Uh, but within all of that, um, there will be, won't there? There will be some people who, if we get this wrong, could lose quite badly. Um, it could be quite expensive or it will be expensive for us to transform our housing stock so that it's much more energy efficient and isn't using gas. And we have choices about who pays uh, for that. Um, we're looking at uh, a world in which there'll be a different set of jobs. There won't be mechanics jobs for fixing petrol and diesel cars. Uh, and there's a danger, at least, that we'll lose 
even more of our manufacturing industry if we get some of this wrong. And if we're putting significant numbers of middle-skilled, middle-paid people out of jobs, uh, then we're not only going to be doing something that's socially unjust, we may even lose the political battle as well and therefore really undermine what we're trying to achieve. So I think a really key issue here is how we achieve what people call a a just or a fair transition, uh, not just one that is relatively cheap and effective in the aggregate. Yeah, I could not agree more. I mean, I I think this is the critical question. It's almost the only question now. So having established that it's possible to, to achieve net zero, again, in the aggregate, relatively cheaply, the question is how you do it fairly. And for me, there's, there's three or four things kind of lurking behind that question. So one of them, interestingly, is the, is the spread of costs and benefits across the economy, so across the sectors of the economy. So in, our, in, this, in, the, in the Climate Change Committee, what we do is we build up these kind of bottom-up scenarios in each sector um, on, on how we can cut emissions. And what's interesting, if you look at the transport sector, the power sector, industry emissions, uh, agricultural emissions, uh, emissions from buildings, um, you know, a collection of sectoral transitions that need to take place. Some of them cost a lot of money. Some of them are actually cheaper than uh, cheaper than, than not acting. So it's quite interesting that when you look at that against a counterfactual of no further climate action, it's actually cheaper than not to decarbonize the uh, transport system now. Uh, it's in it over the 2030s and beyond. It, you think it will be cheaper to decarbonize the power system than not. So it's amazing. You've got these kind of cost savings now, which are coming through largely the innovation process, but we've got real costs sitting in other sectors, notably the cost of decarbonizing buildings, the cost of uh, of the industry uh, transition that's ahead. So one, so one challenge for policy is to spread those costs fairly. So to use the benefits in one sector, so notably the electric vehicles transition that's going to be cost-saving to the economy. So can we find policies that will spread that cost to meet the cost in other sectors? That's going to be one big distributional question. There's a few other things going on. There's the regional issues, which I think are very much tied to the, um, the story and what happens with British industries. So this is Boris's levelling up agenda, and he does appear to be using net zero as a kind of catch-all badge for how the UK will level up. So that's interesting. That's another new development. But that question of how you manage the employment and industrial transition that's taking place over that that movement to net zero is absolutely fundamental. Although the aggregate position is quite clear, the changes within sectors and uh, and investments and employment changes over that period are enormous. So that involves lots of, you know, we need to focus on that. But the, the most interesting area and where I think we've focused least actually is on the question of the consumer costs. So how do we how do we spread those costs um, within the income distribution fairly? And the other consumer issue here is competitiveness. So how do we shield those sectors uh, from from the cost of decarbonisation, those trade exposed industries from the cost of decarbonisation? Because that's a really important concept of what we call carbon leakage. If we don't do that, those industries go somewhere else and don't cut their emissions. So you know that the 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 challenge of that is an enormous one, and it's definitely one for the chancellor. Uh, and happily, the Treasury is thinking that way about it. This is the first, at the moment, as we speak today, there is a a, a, a project taking place in the in the Treasury uh, to look at how the costs of net zero will be met and how they'll be met fairly. And actually, that's, the, to my knowledge, the first time they've ever undertaken a piece of work like that, which is astonishing to say that, actually. So so, so they, they are looking at that work now, and they'll be reporting next year. 
And that, I hope, will have within it some clues as to where fiscal policies will head, because that they seem to me to be really critical to this transition ahead. We've got to spread this cost in a fair way. And it cannot, really important point, it cannot just be the case that we keep putting the cost of decarbonisation on electricity bills. That's a regressive approach. So we need to look to broader mechanisms and some of the fiscal tools especially to achieve this fair transition that we're talking about and one that allows us to maintain the competitiveness of of industries uh, in the UK and protect those vulnerable consumers from these decarbonisation costs because they're real. And perhaps that's an area where we can draw on the experience of of this year. I mean we certainly know that when it comes to um, straightforward redistribution we've seen the state wield enormous uh, tools uh, in, in in moving tens, hundreds of billions of pounds around the economy. But of course, it's more than that. It's not just about um, paying people directly in benefits and so on. It is also uh, around the way that we adjust tax policy. And importantly, it's also going to be a way that we run around the way that we run industrial um, policy. But perhaps, perhaps on, on that last point, and you, you talked about uh, uh, carbon leakage and consumption, um, perhaps we should finish on one very particular issue which um, you know, we, we're occasionally criticised about in terms of the committee's work, and it's more to do with our remit than anything else, which is how we measure whether we get to net zero and whether the UK is actually achieving what it's setting out to achieve. Because certainly if you look over the last 30 years and you look at the emissions created um, in the UK, they've come down very dramatically. But the emissions embedded in our consumption haven't come down anywhere near so dramatically because we're importing a lot of ma- a lot more manufactured goods from the rest of the world and there's a lot of uh, greenhouse gas emissions embedded in their uh, in their production um, that's what people talk about in the UK context as being a consumption emission basis we're measuring all this on a production emissions basis but even if we stop um, creating any greenhouse gases in the UK, if we simply, you know, if, if, if all of the cars and steel and concrete and everything else that we use is manufactured abroad and creates greenhouse gas emissions, we've really not achieved what we're looking to uh, achieve. And, that, and, 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 and if we're going to, and, and that genuinely matters, and if we're going to um, uh, move towards zero on a consumption basis as well as a production basis, um, we're going to need a different set of tools in our armory as well. Yeah, I mean, you're right. We are often criticised for for not tackling the consumption emissions question. I, in the time I've been in this job, I've been keen to try and address that. So we've we've been doing more and more on consumption emissions. Although notably, if you look at the Climate Change Act, which established the committee um, uh, and and really determines all the work that we do, it talks about production emissions only. So it's it talks about the what, the emissions that we are responsible for and and are produced. Uh, within UK borders. But of course, as you say, Paul, uh, this is a challenge of getting total emissions to zero globally. Otherwise, um, the, the efforts that we make in the UK will come to nothing. So you know that, that twin challenge is something I think that the the Climate Change Committee has been more and more willing to look at. And, and just, just to acknowledge at the start, you're absolutely right. The UK is responsible for more um, more than just the emissions that it is uh, producing here in the UK, although the lion's share of the impact of the total carbon footprint, as we call it, is still the production emissions here in the UK. Just a few things to say on that. Firstly, it, it comes from the logic of the UN process, I suppose, that 
each country ultimately is responsible for the emissions within its own border. So yes, we are importing products made somewhere else, um, but it is for those countries, according to the UN, to take primary responsibility for cutting their emissions. I'm a bit suspicious of that. I think you need a bit more than just that UN approach to make this work. So a few things that we can say about that. Firstly, in achieving net zero here in the UK with our production emissions, we will reduce um, in the kind of strategies to get to net zero some of the emissions that we currently import. So notably concrete and steel, we'd be doing less of it under the kind of pathway that we've been advising. So that's kind of worth one thing to say about it. Secondly, this story that we started at the top of this uh, podcast about the global transition is absolutely central. So as, as we get more and more of the global economy under these net zero targets, we can be more and more confident that the consumption emissions that the UK is responsible in the future will fall as well. That's a really important. And that's part of the UK story this year is that we'll be hosting the, um, uh, the next UN Climate Summit, COP26, in my hometown of Glasgow. And the big drive at COP26 will be to, to, to bring more countries and more and more global GDP under net zero. So that, that will have an impact. In fact, the assessments that we've done that by mid-century, 80% of our consumption emissions uh, will have been reduced if uh, we see these mid-century net zero goals delivered. So by 2050, 80% of our consumption emissions should have, should have disappeared if, if, we, if that plays out as planned. But the other thing, we, and the more topical thing, I suppose, in this post-Brexit Britain that we're in now is the question of whether we might use um, more active policies to drive a change. And it's notable that the EU is dabbling in this uh, idea of a, you know, a, a carbon tax at the border, uh, applying a, a higher tax on high carbon products that are imported to the EU. So there's, there might be something in that. So the UK potentially could align with that kind of step. It's unlikely the UK alone could do that kind of carbon, carbon border adjustment, but that might be a new dimension to the armory in tackling uh, global emissions and, and the UK's carbon footprint. But the other thing is consumption generally. And do we waste, uh, do we do we consume too much and do we waste too much? So there's lots that I think we could do now in the absence of these big trade policies and big, uh, big you know, international mechanisms uh, to, to simply reduce our consumption of high carbon goods. So we've moved increasingly in the CCC to give advice on those things. Uh, the, most obviously, what we eat, you know, reducing our consumption of high carbon products, which notably include red meat and dairy, uh, but also wasting less, uh, wasting uh, in, person, in personal consumption patterns, but also, you know, things like agriculture, you know, wasting, uh, you know, doing less food waste, especially on the farm um, and across the economy and consuming less of that high carbon stuff. So steel production and concrete are the kind of really big, uh, you know, a massive footprint attached to that. Finding strategies that that require us to use less concrete and less steel is another way that we can reduce that total carbon footprint. And I suppose what we're teasing out, even in this short discussion, is that the, the answer to uh, tackling climate change is going to involve a whole set of strategies, not just these national um, uh, national commitments that you know, see increasingly the UK and others signing up to, but also a completely interwoven discussion of our consumption patterns and how we trade with each other. So um, for me, this is a really exciting element of the work over the next 10, 20 years. And that circles back, I think, really to where we started, that this is a big economy-wide and society-wide change that we're talking about. I think people often do understate or underestimate the extent to which this will require 
really serious change in in all sorts of aspects of our life. Some some which we've done already, but we haven't noticed because the electricity coming through the plug looks exactly the same as it always did, but is now produced in a very different way. We'll move to electric cars, which will be a change, but something that is um, not unrecognisable. Uh, but the way we heat our houses uh, will change um, and will be quite you know, potentially disruptive. But we're also looking for, and I think you're, we are looking for, behaviour change as well, which is something which is quite difficult for governments to achieve and really requires the engagement um, of the population as a whole. And that needs to be an active engagement and an engagement that people believe in and trust in, and not just because it's going to be good for the climate, but also because it's taking account, as we've discussed, of the the fairness and the justice of the transition uh, that we're we're going through. Um, We could... Chris, um, talk about this for an awful lot longer. There's so much um, to cover, and that's not surprising because we are talking about the, you know, the biggest set of policies I think we'll see over the next um, 30 years, and a huge change in uh, in, in the economy. Uh, but we have um, sadly come to the end of our uh, time for this uh, for this edition um, of the IFS zooms in. So thank you very much to Chris Stark, uh, Chief Executive of the. Uh, Committee on uh, Climate Change. Thank you uh, to everyone who's been listening. Do tune in uh, in the future. For all of our latest work, please visit www.ifs.org.uk. And to support our work, please consider becoming a supporter of the IFS for as little as just £5 a month. You can find a link with further information uh, in the episode description and, of course, on our website. Thank you for listening and do stay well.